Hey, Build listeners. My name is Meg Johnson, and I'm a multimedia marketer at OpenView. While we ramp up the next season of Build, over the next few weeks, you can enjoy a new short podcast series we've titled Building to Last. We've connected with people who have built SaaS companies through the limitations and challenges of a crisis and asked their advice on how they would advise CEOs today. By interviewing industry experts at the forefront of this battle, we look to empower founders, CEOs, and SaaS builders to stay strong and take advantage of the changing landscape of tech. And to come through this crisis, not only afloat, but thriving on the other side. This episode is hosted by OpenView's PLG expert, Blake Bartlett, who is joined by Robert Wabi and Oliver Sharp. Both Oliver and Robert worked through the Great Recession of the early 2000s and are currently working through the COVID-19 crisis today at Highspot. Here's what they had to say. All right, so my first question is for you, Oliver. Mm-hmm. And it's about, you know, the, we're obviously in a current downturn and a current difficult period. And, you know, it obviously makes all of us reflect on past downturns that we've seen before and, and look for lessons that we've learned. So I'm curious from, from your perspective, uh, what other downturns have you seen in your career? And what were those like? And what did you learn from them? Yeah, so I've been through a number of them, but the one that really was the formative one for me was the dot-com period. We had taken our company public in 99 during the absolutely peak of the craziness of that particular era. And then April 2000 happened and we, like everyone else, were just absolutely crushed. So our stock price went from 60 to seven eighths. We were selling for less than cash in the bank and we were profitable. It, and it took a long time to get to seven eights. It wasn't like it happened in a week. It happened over the course of a year. And you basically just got ground down day after day, watching all the companies around you getting completely crushed, wiped out, going out of business. It was, it was pretty tough. And that experience, that crucible, if you will, was one that I've reflected on for ever since. And I've learned, I think, a lot of important lessons from it. And Robert has heard me talk about it way more than anyone should have to listen to anecdotes. I've learned many lessons, but I'll just pick a couple that I were really powerful for me. The first one is cash. As I like to say, the correlation between running out of cash and going out of business is 100%. If you, you want to have cash, you want to be very careful about managing your cash. You deeply do not want to go get cash in the middle of the really tough period because either you can't get it or you can get it at really horrible terms that wipes you out and especially wipes out your employees. So that's just number one. I'm just religious about having cash. The second thing is when things are really frothy, you think to yourself, look at all those crazy things happening around me. But of course, we're the great company, the fine company. We're not, nothing like that could ever happen to us. The bad things will all happen to the other people. Well, guess what? No one is immune when things get really rough. You will emerge out the other side if you're smart and thoughtful and do all the right things, but you are going to take some really significant hits too, and don't fool yourself into thinking that you're immune. So you have to be ready, stand it. And if you look at you know the track record of some of the greatest companies that we think of as having the biggest impact in the world, companies like you know Apple and Amazon, companies like that, they often, in those two particular cases especially, they went through existential crises Sometimes because of a downturn like this, like Amazon went from, I believe, 106 to seven, I think, in their stock price, and then up past 2000. So, you know, they went through like a really tough time, but they got stronger because of it. 
and they emerged in a better position than ever because they were able to, you know, the, the old saying, which actually is kind of cheesy, but I like it anyway, which is the strongest steel is forged in the hottest flames. And when you go through an experience like that, I think it builds a strength and a character and a resiliency in the organization that serves you well in any situation. And how do you find the present situation with COVID-19 and this downturn and this current period that we're all going through? How do you find it to be similar to prior periods? And how do you find it to be different? Well, I think it's similar in the sense that everyone's put under pressure and that it's that cash is your magic ticket to getting through it gracefully and being able to preserve the important things about the company that you need to preserve. It's different in that, unlike at least the dot-com example, it's very selective in which sectors it's hitting. And it's hitting those sectors brutally. But there are many sectors that are not being hit. And so it's much more selective, whereas the dot-com thing hit just everybody. And then the other thing that's different is that because of the nature of the pandemic, it means that we're physically and socially isolated from each other. And you know, human beings take comfort in times of stress and difficulty from each other fundamentally, right? Like we're very social creatures. That's where our source of comfort and, and confidence comes from is each other. And our ability to connect with each other and gather together and get through this together is really being badly impacted by the fact that we're isolated. And that's a really weird and different dynamic than any I've ever experienced and Robert, curious to get you your perspective on this. So what have you learned over the course of your career on leading through a crisis? Yeah, I think, you know, whether it's a crisis of this scale and, you know, once in a lifetime, once in a century, or whether it's the everyday challenges, it's all a continuum. And I think the same basic things apply, though, obviously, in a pandemic, it's somewhat extreme. You know, I think about three really important things. Um, I think about strategy. I think about plans and I think about communication. So strategy to me is what is the decision framework? What are the set of principles by which you're going to make a set of plans? And it's not the plan itself, it's how are you gonna come up with that? Um, the plan is you know, the concrete thing you're gonna go do. Like, you know, as we think about the pandemic, are you gonna continue to business as normal and continue to hire people? Are you going to freeze hiring? Are you gonna cut hiring? What are you gonna do? Those are the plans, but hopefully, they're not just plans in the vacuum. They're against a set of principles that you've you know, articulated well. And then I think about communication. So as you're doing this, especially as the challenges get bigger and bigger and harder and harder, obviously up to the pandemic, um, you know, communicating not only the plan, I think people naturally communicate the plan. They say, hey, we're like, let's just take an example. This is not true for high spot, but let's say we're going to freeze hiring. That's a common plan right now. Um, people communicate that plan because they have to, because they have to operationalize it. I think when you think about communication, you have to communicate the plan, but you also have to communicate the strategy. Why are we doing that? What is the way by which we made that decision? Because when you're handling a crisis, people want to know what's going on, but even more, they want to understand why it's going on so that they might be able to predict based on new data that comes in all the time, what might happen in the future. So if you give them both the why, which I'm calling the strategy, and the what, which is the plan, I think people do much better. And then the other old adage, which I think is always true, and it's especially true in a crisis, is that you really can't over-communicate. So you really have to do that all the time, more often than you could possibly expect. Partly it's because 
people aren't listening as easily because they're in crisis mode. And so they're not hearing all of the nuances of what you're saying. So you have to do it over and over and over again. So those are the three things I think about when I think about it broadly. And then I can talk about kind of what we're doing with respect to the pandemic as well. But that's kind of my broad framework for thinking about this stuff. And to double click into one of those where you were talking about, um, you know, it's important to lay out the different plans that you could have and what you would need to see in the external environment in order to trigger you to take one of those various different paths. And so it's not about having perfect prediction over like, this is the path and I know because I have a crystal ball, but we don't know. So create a bunch of different paths and then decide which ones to go down later. And, and you introduced me to a planning framework uh, that kind of compares exactly those two things. On the one hand, macro scenarios that you might see that are outside of our control, and then operational strategies that we might pursue that are inside our control and kind of creating a matrix of those two things. So curious to know kind of a little bit more about that framework and why you like it and, and how, to, how to use something like that. Yeah, and I would say we invented that plan, if you will, that set of plans, which derived from our strategy and the strategy was around optionality. So, you know, often in, in more normal circumstances, you know, your strategy, you have your strategies and that comes out with a forecast and a set of operating principles and you map those out over the year and then you execute against them, you know, standard business 101. I think in this situation, you know, for us, the main strategy, interestingly, is maintain optionality. You have to be very careful about one-way doors versus two-way doors. You know, two-way doors are things that you can undo. So for example, a, a trivial example might be, if you're gonna sign a vendor contract for a very important needed piece of infrastructure, if it's a two-year contract, that's a one-way door for two years. Can't get out of it. If it's month to month, it might cost you more, but I can undo that decision. So our strategy was, because we believe that you can't really have that crystal ball and know when the economy is gonna return, is it Q3, is it Q4, is it Q1, what have you, the key strategy is optionality. And then if you think about how do you have a plan which says, I'm not going to have a plan, that's a hard thing to go do. So how do you create that optionality in the plan? And what we did is we invented this very simple matrix where we said, okay, what are the possible macro environments? And we invented kind of, you know, you can do any number of levels, but we did three in your blog. I think you named them well, you know, economic ripple, economic recession, economic reset. And it's important when you think about those to both think about those for the current year and the next year, especially if you're in a B2B business, especially if you have long lead cycles. Because often what you're hiring for in a given period is not for the current period, but for a period, you know, two, three, four quarters from now. And so when you're thinking about that overall plan, you better make sure that you're understanding what the implications are for not only this year, but also for next year. So you might, for example, say in the Ripple, I'm gonna grow 80%. And in the re recession, I'm going to grow 50. And maybe in the reset, I'm going to grow 20, whatever your business needs. And then the following year, you have to make predictions as well. So you do that. And then you say, okay, now I have my possible plans. Again, maintaining optionality. A might be business as usual, not going to do a thing differently. B might be, hey, you know what? I think I might want to slow down my hiring just a bit. Maybe I'll cut my hiring in half. Plan C might be, I'm going to freeze hiring. Obviously, many companies are faced with having to do layoffs, that might be plan D, et cetera, et cetera. And then the cells are really instructive because they say, okay, you put in the key data points in those cells. So it's the, you know, for us, we looked at things like runway and things like balance sheet. 
And so you can say to yourself, where am I comfortable with all these different macro possibilities and all these different plans? Where am I comfortable operating? And then you can refresh that very easily over the period of time. But again, it's, re it's reflecting the strategy of I want to maintain optionality, which means that I don't want to take any action that's on a potential plan that's going to mean that I'm going to run out of cash unless the economy rebounds in Q4. I'm saying the strategy I don't know, so I better make sure that I only have the plans that actually allow me to continue. And as Oliver said, you know, cash, cash is king in this case. And so that's kind of the structure that we use to do that. And then the key thing is then to communicate that all the time, you know, the strategy and those possible optionalities and do that, you know, at high spot, we're communicating at a minimum two times to the whole company every week around both that strategy and that plan. How do you know when to go from uh, a plan A to a plan B to a plan C? What are you looking for? Well, what's interesting is it all depends on what you put as your key triggers, if you will, in those macro environments. So the ripple, the recession, and the reset. You know, for us, and I think for most companies, a key indicator is our ability to achieve our revenue targets. And so if you said to yourself, again, I'm just making up round numbers, but if you said, hey, in the, in the ripple, it's just a very small thing. I'm going to get 80% growth. Maybe that's 80% of my plan. And you find that after two or three months, you're not hitting that. You say to yourself, okay, now I'm in a different column, if you will. What does that mean if I have a certain risk profile that I'm willing to take? So maybe my so risk profile might look like this. Again, I'm making this all up for um, instructive purposes. You might say, hey, I want to make sure I have cash for two years, whatever that number is. Given that, and I see what column I need to be in and the burn needs to be based on what I'm getting as macroeconomics. And then if your strategy is optionality, which I think a lot of companies are, a lot of public companies are coming out and in their earnings call, even if they're doing well, they're saying, we're not giving you guidance because we don't know how to forecast. And so what you say to yourself is I need to reevaluate that matrix probably every month, at least every quarter, but probably every month to make sure you're doing the right set of things. And again, being very careful on one-way versus two-way doors. Another example of a two-way door might be M&A. Once you buy the other company, you bought it. <laughs> you can't go back. And so if that is stressful in terms of your balance sheet, if that's stressful in terms of integration, something to be very careful about because you can't go back. So that moves you in that optionality graph, if you will, on that matrix that we're talking about. Yep. I also like how the, the concept of optionality, it also gives the individuals or the founders of the management team a little bit of leeway and a little bit of grace because you don't have to be the most prescient person on the face of the earth to pick the exact right scenario. Back to that crystal ball example. Instead, you can kind of have all of the different paths and sort of have this set of rules you'll use in order to pick a path. And, you know, I like that illustration. I kind of use the illustration of it's a chessboard where every square is playable as opposed to a dartboard where you can only hit one and hopefully you get it right. Yeah, optionality is, is key. And the other thing I think is, I completely agree with that and just building on it. I think the other thing at least I'm saying to, to my management team is let's not spend a lot of time trying to forecast. Like I think a very natural reaction in this environment um, and you know, you get calls from your board and you get calls from other people in the management team is, hey, I think this is going to hit our business. What do you think it's going to do? Are we going to be off by 20% or 10% or 30% or what's that number going to be? And I think a lot of teams just want to go into, let's just start forecasting. And in my sense is the strategy is optionality. We have no idea how to forecast. Every ounce of energy you put into forecasting, don't forecast. Put it into helping the business. 
telling the right story for an economic downturn, change, you know, changing your cogs, changing your product portfolio, whatever you need to do, put your energy there, knowing that you're maintaining the optionality. And shifting gears a bit here, I'm curious to get your take on how companies and teams should be engaging with their key constituents. And so I figure we can kind of go down the list and talk about the, the big buckets and get your, your, your guys' perspective on that. So I guess maybe to start, Hugh Oliver, how should SaaS startups be engaging with their customers right now? Yeah, so I think about that a lot. And I kind of think about it in two ways. I think there's a human component to it, and I think there's a value component to it. So starting with the human side, I think one important thing to just embrace is that the people that you're working with are under a lot of pressure and they may be in a pretty fragile place. And so you need to be even more empathetic than usual. You need to be there to support them. There's an old you know, saying that people won't remember what you say, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so you want to be one of the things that makes them feel better. And so when you enter any conversation with a customer, I think a, a really important principle you want to have in your head is how can I engage with them so that we walk out of this room with them feeling better, more confident, more supported, more aware of what they need to do or how they can leverage your product in ways to help them. So that's a key thing. And I think that both that's important in supporting your customer now. And I think it sets the foundation for a future of an even closer and better relationship that you, um, you know, on the other end. But just remember that, you know, your customer may be going through layoffs. They, their job may be at risk. They are worried. They're anxious. They're at home. They are under a lot of stress with, you know, small kids that they're taking care of, you know, whatever their life circumstances have happened to be. So just always remember that when you're working with customers, the human side, I think is really important. It comes first. Then the second part is sort of value. How do you make sure that they're getting as much value as possible from your product? Sometimes that's about, you know, teaching them best practices. Sometimes that's about, you know, going even more uh, deeper into uh, the way to leverage the product, going even further out of your way to help them. That's a component of it. Also, if you're a SaaS product, it's very possible, and in our case, it's certainly true, that they're going to rely on you more during this period because, for example, what we do is we help you know, convey information to field-facing teams. And field-facing teams often rely on informal, tribal knowledge, talking to each other, you know, mentoring. And a lot of that has been cut off by the social distancing that we're all undergoing. And therefore, they're even more reliant on tools than usual. So in our case, we've seen a very significant rise in the amount of usage of our product for that reason. So that's a way you can deliver more value to them. Another thing that you can think about doing, and you got to be careful about this, but you also can think about this might be a chance to challenge them a little bit because your customer is used to doing things a certain way. And maybe you think there's ways that they could change the way they do things to get more value and to do a better job in the space that you exist in as a vendor. Well, maybe they can't do things exactly the way they've done it in the past. And so this could be a chance. And again, you have to be careful and empathetic and all that. But this might be a chance to challenge some of the conventional wisdom and really move the way that they're leveraging your product and interacting with it forward in ways they might not be willing to do under normal circumstances. So it's worth thinking about that as a possibility. And 
Robert, talking about a couple of the other constituents, you know, more internal constituents, how should SaaS startups be engaging with their teams right now? I think the things that we do normally often apply, you know, communicate early, communicate often, all of those things. I think the one thing that is a little bit different, you know, as Oliver talked about the social distancing and the nature of the pandemic, is that you really have to remember that your team members whether you're a small company or a big company, the people on your team are potentially experiencing this radically differently. And so you really do have to kind of individualize and make sure that everybody is getting the right kinds of communication and the right kinds of conversation. So you have people that are early in career, doing great, and all of a sudden they're stuck at home with four roommates, a lousy internet connection, and they're, you know, and they're having to go back and forth between, I get the kitchen now, you take the bathroom, I take the living room you know, for their business meetings. Versus you might have someone who lives alone, which is a certain kind of stress. Someone who lives with a family who has you know, homeschooling their kids is a different kind of stress. Versus you know, someone late in career who has a home office, as an example. Very different things. And so there's not one size fits all. And so I think it's really important to realize that you're going to be communicating as you do naturally, but also you have to make sure that your managers are getting the support they need so that they in turn can be having those one-on-ones, having those conversations, being empathetic and asking, you know, how's it going and what can we maybe do? A good example might be normally you wouldn't do this, but in this situation, a manager might say, you know, what can I do to help? And the employee might say, you know what, I have to do homeschooling for my, you know, K through three grade. And I need to miss the important meetings we have from 11 to one every single day. And that might be okay. And it wouldn't normally be okay, but now it's completely okay. But you won't know that unless you're communicating in a pretty different way, where you're having informal standups, where you're really creating a safe space for people to say, you know what, I really have to do this for my homeschooling or I have to take care of an elderly parent or whatever it may be. I think that's very different. And so that comes down to a lot of manager enablement and support of them. So you have to make sure your manager community is doing great so that your employee communication can do great. And then with that, the backdrop has to be that you're providing, like I said before, kind of that strategy and the plan and then people can operate against it. I think that is a really critical thing for the team that's different in an environment like this and in a crisis like this. And last big constituent bucket, especially for venture-backed startups, I know many founders and CEOs are thinking about this, which is how should I be engaging with my board right now? Yeah. Well, I think you should mostly ignore them. Likes <laughs> <laughs> on my board. Yes. <laughs> I think the board is part of creating that strategy and part of creating that plan. They need as much visibility as you can do. I think the balance is You don't want to do so much that you're causing your team additional work. They're already under a level of stress trying to make sure they're managing the business. But I do think the board provides a really good sounding board to management teams to say, hey, here's what we think our strategy is. Here's what we think our plans are. Maybe in our case, you know, we have a set of plans. Here's the implications of those plans with respect to our hiring, respect to our runway, respect to our balance sheet, respect to how we think about our competitors, all of those things. And the board can be a very good way to validate those because just by having that conversation, you validate kind of your ideas and the board can push back in all the appropriate ways. The other thing the board can do that might not be completely obvious at first, but is they have a lot of other portfolio companies. And so, you know, all of a sudden, very quickly, 
if you're engaging your board and you have, let's say, a few board members, you now have access to maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 different data points about what are people doing? How are they managing this? What kinds of plans are they creating? What kinds of strategy? And that only not only gives you ideas, but it also helps you calibrate. So you can say to yourself, you know, I think I am going to slow down hiring by this percentage. Am I, where am I in the percentiles with respect to cohorts that are like us and at the same stage of growth in the same kind of uh, company? That is incredibly helpful, which you can't do as easily on your own. You can't go talk to 80 startups in a very convenient way, but the, the, the board plus their connections, because they're all talking, it's a fantastic way to calibrate. So I would say visibility, engage and validate the strategy and the plan, and then use the calibration of that board more often than you normally would. Like, you know, check your work, I would say. It's very helpful to do that. We've been talking a lot through these recent topics about how do you respond to the external environment? And a lot of it's focused around potential defensive moves based off of what's presenting itself externally. But there's also an opportunity to be offensive and to see where is there opportunities to look at the competitive landscape and, and potentially capitalize. So Oliver, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what does it look like to not just survive through a difficult period, but find ways to play offense and, and also thrive. Yeah. So, you know, we think about that a lot. And the number one imperative, as, as you met, you know, sort of referenced in your question is you've got to survive. So don't do anything that imperils your ability as an organization to survive intact. But I really do think that these times can be an opportunity to make yourself stronger in a lot of ways. I think that you can really step up for your customers and you can change the nature of your relationship with your customer in important ways, positive ways. I think that you can challenge the conventional way of doing things and use this as an opportunity to make changes either, as we talked about earlier, driving changes with your customer, make changes internally that maybe you've been reluctant to do or haven't gotten around to. I also think that it's a chance to pay off debt. So if you've been in a hyper growth phase, as we have and many other companies, of course, have, you have debt. It's not possible to grow quickly and not have debt. There's organizational debt. There's training and enablement debt. There's just, you know, there's often technical debt sometimes. I mean, there's lots of different kinds of debt. And so this is a chance for you to go and really forge the, where you put wood in <laughs> to hold everything together, make it steel. Um, so I think that's another opportunity. Another thing is you can get some great people, you know, when the world is in a really tough place and you have a little bit of spare ammunition, you can go get fantastic people that you might not otherwise have been able to get. So think hard about what would be game changing hires for you. And if you're fortunate enough to be in a position to do it, then make some of them. So I think that's another key way to do it. And, but the biggest thing, the most important thing I think is invest in your core differentiators. Think about what makes you special. What is your, your key differentiating value prop as a company? And really narrow down and just focus on really building that up. And so, for example, if it's your product, which for many companies it is, certainly for us it is, go and do really important work in the product. When we all emerge from this and we're back in a more conventional environment, you have what you need to just go to that next level of competitiveness. And so 
I really think it's important to think really hard about what at the essence is your core differentiator and then figure out how do you double, triple down on that in a very, very focused way? Because in general, you know, the tendency is to kind of move everything forward. We're going to hire some people. We're going to get better at this. We're going to get better at that. We're going to beat this up. But in a time when you're under more pressure, you want to focus and you want to think about what is the thing that really is unique and really differentiated and then just go hammer on that. And final two questions for you guys. We'd love to get both of you to, to weigh in on these. And these are a little bit more personal, I think, for, for founders and for, for executives, which is, you know, obviously calling out the fact that this is a very stressful time for, for everyone. But it also takes the CEO job, which many people often refer to as the loneliest job because there's only one and everyone's looking to you. The board's looking to you. The team's looking to you. So it can be isolating. And all the more so right now during a very unprecedented period. So what advice do you guys have for founders and CEOs struggling with, you know, the stress and the strain and and mental health issues? I will be less definitive in speaking on behalf of the CEO since I'm not one. The where I go with this is that it's the same things you should always be doing, but it intensifies them. So as an example... One of the core principles that you try to do in a team is that the leadership team is the first team and you are there for each other. You can support each other. You can be vulnerable with each other. You can talk about your struggles in a way that really is not appropriate for you to do in general with your team. So I think leaning on each other is a really important component on it. And I think that's always true, but I think it's just intensified. And then another thing that I think about, it's just what I was talking about before, which is people are more fragile than usual. So things that might work under normal circumstances where maybe you're challenging people a little bit and you're pushing people a little bit might not work so well when everybody's feeling fragile and under a lot of pressure. I've definitely been experiencing that, you know, with somewhat with peers, somewhat with my own team that, you you know, things that we're pushing them might be a good thing to do in a normal situation maybe this isn't the time to do it. And you want to be a lot more careful and thoughtful about that. You know, one of the things I I stole from a, a blog that was actually really good about management was that a core principle of your time with other people is you're there to make a difference in their life. And so ask yourself, are you meeting that bar? Are you meeting that bar up, down, sideways? And I think that's a really good question to challenge yourself with. And you won't always rise to it, but you should try. Yeah, I I think about a few things. One is I do think no matter what your situation, this does feel harder. And I thought a lot about why it feels harder and I can't quite put my finger on it, but you know, I talk to other CEOs, I talk to other people and other startups and everyone feels like no matter what their situation, no matter how good their home office is, no matter how good their setup is, no matter where their company is, are they plenty of money and a great balance sheet, kind of tight, you know, everything in between, everyone feels like this has been harder. And I don't know if it's because we're staring at Zoom and we get Zoom fatigue. I don't know if it's because we're not able to walk around, if people aren't exercising as much. I really don't have my finger on it, but I do know that, as Oliver said, people feel, and they say they feel more fragile, they feel tired. I know that I personally, you know, don't mind getting uh, into the office early in the morning and leaving late. But I am more tired here at home when I at five or six o'clock than I was at eight or nine o'clock at the office for whatever reason. So I think that matters as that people are just a little bit more tired, a little bit more fragile, a little bit more stressed for whatever set of reasons. I think you layer on that, it really is different for different people. And when you think about 
your team as a CEO, your direct team, but your broader team, you know, being empathetic and knowing that what you experience might not be what your team is experiencing and vice versa, vice versa, and having the space to have that conversation, I think really matters. And so people can be upfront about what's going on for them and how each person can support the other people, you know, left, right, up, down, all of those kinds of things. The other thing I think about in terms of kind of mental health for the founders and the management team and the broad team is this is likely a marathon and not a sprint. And so I think it does change your mindset to think that, you know, we might be in this kind of shelter in place for another month. And it's already been, you know, for different states, it's been different times, but it's already been a while. And even when we go back to work, it might be in periodic waves. It might not be everybody, et cetera. And so when you think about that with respect to your own situation, you might be doing things a little bit differently. I'll give you a trivial example, but one that matters to me for myself. You know, I got a stand-up desk. At work, I stand around, I walk around, I do that. I've been sitting in front of my Zoom all day long. It made a big difference when I got a stand-up desk. And I wouldn't have got it if I thought it was a month away. I mean, why would I do that for one month? But I'm thinking, well, if I have to be here for months and months, this really does matter. There might be things like that for founders and for management teams where it does matter if you think about it for the long term. And the final thing I would say, and people kind of forget this, I think, you know, this will pass. You know, this is an economic downturn. And what you, the only thing you know about an economic downturn is that it'll be followed by an economic upturn. And so, you know, that means that when you think about your own mental health, I, I do think it's important. And, and as the CEO, you know, you really do have to shoulder this and say, look, you have to be optimistic, A, because it's true, and B, because the team needs it, where, you know, we have a phrase around high spot quite a bit, which is, you know, this is, we're going to manage through the downturn and we're going to invest into the upturn. And that's about the things that Oliver mentioned and investing in the product and investing in our differentiation. But you have to keep reminding the team that this is the new norm, but it's not the new norm forever. And so you can be optimistic about it. You have to, of course, be empathetic to the people that are going through real issues. You know, they might have lost somebody, they might be going through the sickness themselves, all of that. But know that you can also be optimistic on the other side. I think it's important to remember that yourself as the CEO and as a management team member, and also make sure that you you say it often enough. Yeah, and one one other thought, to building on what, what Robert said, which I think is exactly right, there's actually this concept uh, that's sometimes known as Stockdale's Paradox, and it was named after this guy who was a, Vietnam, a Vietnamese POW, and he had in prison for a long time. And he was asked, you know, who makes it through crucible experience like that, which is like a really obviously brutal experience, much worse than, you know, what, what we're facing, or at least most of us are facing. And what he said was that the people who got through it were long-term optimistic and short-term realistic. So the people who are like, you know, every helicopter might be my rescue, you know, mission. And then they were constantly, you know, disappointed when that didn't happen. It would break them. And the people who gave up on ever having a success, you know, never ever getting out, it would just lose their, their spirit. The people who made it through mixed those two long-term optimistic. I'm going to make it through. I'm going to be okay. But short-term realistic, this is not like about to go away anytime soon. And I can't expect it to. And I, I was really struck by that when I read about it a long time ago. And it just sort of something that's been on my mind a lot. I think that's really the approach that makes sense to me in this situation. 
Yeah, and I think all of those those perspectives are are really solid for the founder, for the CEO, for the executive team, kind of thinking about themselves in in the work context. My last question for you guys is on the personal context, which unfortunately those two things are very closely coupled right now. We're we're living our personal lives and our professional lives in our homes. But what advice do you have for founders on the home front? What does work-life balance or work-life integration look like during this period? So obviously I'll sort of, I'll repeat Robert's point that it really varies dramatically, you know, based on your circumstances. I know people who have three children, less than three in their house. And, you know, my children are, you know, in college and high school and they're very autonomous and, and other people are living by themselves. So I think it, it's really going to be, I, I don't think there's any one, you know, recipe that applies to everybody, but for someone who is at least in my situation where my, I, the children are here, but they're older and, and relatively autonomous, I think it's, a lot about supporting each other, giving each other space, but also making up for some of the social element that they're missing, right? And realizing that everyone in the situation is, you know, it, this is a little bit of a, a strong word, but I think there's validity to it. They're all grieving a little bit about losing. I mean, some people, of course, are in very tough situations. So, you know, I mean, that's a different thing. But for those of us who are we're basically fine, but dealing with a difficult kind of environment that we're in, we're all really sad about the things that have been taken away, our connection to other people, our ability to just go do things that we took for granted, our ability to enjoy the outdoors and enjoy other people and all those kinds of things. And you just have to like try to make up for that with the people in your life and in your environment as much as you can and support those people who need help. So, so I think just remember that other people may need more help than they usually do and make sure that you're, you're delivering on that as well as your work responsibilities would be, I think, what I think about. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer. My intuition is that people listening to this podcast and other founders and executives and startups and management teams, they work a lot. <laughs> they work hard. And I think they work harder now because they're managing their company through you know, once in a century crisis. And I think that's okay and that's kind of predictable. And what that means to every individual is so different. The only thing I would say is you better pace yourself. <laughs> so I think, you know, if you work 14 hours a day and that's great, you know, and you do that seven days a week and that's totally within your abilities with your family and your life and that works, great. Just know that you're gonna be doing that for a long time and this crisis is not gonna go away anytime soon. I mean even if it's a wonderful V shape, as opposed to the more likely U shape, it's still going to be a while where we're in an economic downturn and it could last a long time. So I think whatever your work life blend and balance is, you better be doing it in a way that you can sustain. So I guess what that means is whatever you were doing before this, you're probably going to have to add some level of oomph because you're trying to get these plans and trying to make sure you communicate and make sure that you're inventing the future with new ways to go to market. You know, for example, in our business where we do a lot of trade shows around the world and those are now all gone. And so for demand generation, they had to literally invent the future. They just did a very large virtual event for the first time on a platform they built. That's a lot of extra work. So I think you are going to have extra work. Just know that in the context of that extra work, because you're managing the crisis, you got to sustain it. So if it took everything you had, then you need to dial it back because you're going to have this for a few more months. If that was all within your abilities and you felt great and you thought, 
you know, 18 hours and waking up at two o'clock in the morning because this conference happened to be in EMEA and we were doing it out of the US. If two o'clock in the morning is awesome for you, then keep going. But if it's a little bit tough, then you should probably take a break and make sure you do that. And I think as management team, you have to know that, and Oliver mentioned this, you can't expect everybody to work all the time through this. You have to give them the space because you don't know what they're going through. And you know you have to make sure that they're not burning out either. I think burnout is the key thing you have to kind of manage against both personally and, and for your team. And what burnout means, of course, is very different for different people at different stages of life. Oh, sorry, just to, to build on that, um, I, I, I want to just make one comment. So I was watching an interview at once with uh, Marissa Mayer, and you know she worked at Google during the period when you know people were just in this crazy, crazy burnout kind of lifestyle, you know, programmers icing their wrists and sleeping under their tables and things like that. And somebody asked her, so what about work-life balance? And she's someone who sort of famously has terrible work-life balance. And she gave an answer that I thought had a lot of real wisdom to it. She said, don't do things you resent. And what that means for different people is going to be different. Some people are going to, you know, like you and I might choose, might do exactly the same things. And, you know, you're perfectly happy and I'm seething with resentment. You know, figure out what it is that makes you feel resentful, that it's just, you know, it's not fair. And of course, this is mostly self-imposed. So, you know, you're not being fair to yourself. <laughs> but I thought that was a really smart way to think about it because the answer will, like Robert said, differ radically for different people. But what you don't want is to just be sitting there, you know, just seething with resentment because you have to do this thing that you don't want to do, don't feel like you should be doing. That's the symptom, I think, that you're on a burnout path. The advice you guys gave earlier, which is that this is a marathon, not a sprint, applies here as well. Both the pace of work, the amount of work, as well as what you're saying yes to and no to, for your point, Oliver, is incredibly important. Because otherwise, if you if it's no holds barred and you know no boundaries, you're you're heading straight for for burnout. That's for sure. I remember very well. I, I you know this is many years ago, but I had a big team, and we were launching something. And this was back before, that was not a SaaS product; it was a, a shipping product. So we had a, we had an actual deadline that we had to hit in, in various ways, and the team was feeling very burned out broadly. And I was talking to one of our very best engineers, but relatively early in career. And I was saying, you know, you're probably feeling really burned out. You're looking forward to when we ship. And he's like, no, this has been the most fun I've ever had. And I wish we would work more. And I'm really kind of bummed that people seem to go home at eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night. Like, what the heck? We should party all the way. And by party, he meant code all the way into the night. Again, you know, how people experience things is very different. I think Oliver's and Marissa's point is right, which is, you know, make sure that it's, it's satisfying to each person. And of course, there's broad rules of the road, but I think each person experiences that very differently. Well, look, guys, thank you for, for joining us today on the podcast. This is not a conversation that I think any of us want to be having or listening to, but it's one that we're finding ourselves in. So it's incredibly important. And I know that I value your leadership at High Spot. Giving the, the audience the exposure to that is super valuable. So thank you for taking the time today, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us, Blake. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Building to Last, a short podcast series hosted by OpenView Venture Partners. If you like what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Build for more insights on product-led growth. And... If you're building a B2B SaaS company and would like to talk strategy or fundraising, OpenView can help. Please reach out via email to hello at ov.vc. Take care, everyone.